You're listening to the Lost Mountain Podcast. Lost Mountain exists to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. We hope today's message encourages you towards a deeper relationship with Christ. If you have questions from today's message, email us at info at lmbc.us. Link is in the show notes. This morning and today, uh, we celebrate along with Protestants across our country and across the world, uh, what is known as Reformation Sunday. Reformation Sunday. That's a new term or a new idea or a new thought uh, for you. You're going to learn a little bit about it uh, this morning, but I would encourage you, if you were not here last year, we did uh, a sermon that turned into a series on the Reformation. I think it was five or six weeks, so I encourage you to go back, go to the app, go to the sermons, go back this time last year, and listen through those messages to get a much fuller account of why the Reformation is so significant and what it was. Um, Now, what I want to do this morning is give uh, a 30 or maybe 45,000 foot view, uh, just briefly, very briefly, onto the history of the Reformation, what God did there, why it still matters to us today, and how it's still shaping us today, and look at a a particular passage together uh, that really gets at the very central heart of, of what God did in and through the lives uh, of individuals in the uh, 16th century that still uh, resonates with us today. I want to begin with the scriptures. I want to begin uh, with a passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, a passage that will be familiar uh, to many of you. Uh, if you've got uh, your Bible with you, you can begin opening it. Uh, you can open the notes section on the app. The last I checked sitting over there just a few minutes ago, part of what should be in there in the notes section of the app is in there, and part of what should be there is not in there. So we'll see what happens. You can follow along as best you can. Uh, But let me start out by reading uh, a passage that, as I said, is somewhat familiar to many of you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning with verse 17, the apostle Paul writes, therefore, if anyone is in Christ. The new creation has come, or he or she is a manifestation of that new creation. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of gathering together on this beautiful morning. God, we're drawn in here not by human choice or human decision, ultimately, Father, but by your will. 
and by the movement of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So God, we thank you this morning for every man, woman, and child in this room. And God, I pray that you would stir in our hearts, God, that you would touch us with even a small degree of the heat that inflamed the hearts and the minds of the reformers and changed the history of the church and the world forever. God, burn in our hearts today. Light our hearts on fire. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, some of you, some of you know uh, a little bit about this story. Martin Luther, uh, a young German uh, monk, Roman Catholic monk, that was all that there was, the, the Roman Catholic Church. And Luther was highly intellectual, but also a highly guilt-ridden. He understood in a way that I think most of us have lost today, his utter sinfulness before God. Complete and total sinfulness and helplessness before God. And yet the theology of his day could be summed up in a common phrase from that day that went like this. A good God is bound to accept the good works of a good man. A good God is bound to accept the good works of a good man. And just, a, just a, a little idea on why the Reformation still matters so much. I would submit to you that that is the theological opinion of the vast majority of the men and women that you talk to every day when really pushed on it. When, when you really help them get down to what they believe with questions, it is exactly this. That surely... This loving God that they've been told all their lives, directly and indirectly, loves them. Is bound to accept their good works because they're basically good people. That is the, the theology of the street today. And I'll be quite honest, it is the theology that um, permeates many in many of our churches today. It's why no one ever thinks at a funeral of their loved one or friend, no matter how empty they were of any biblical fruit or evidence of salvation, that they died separated from God. I can tell you, having done years and years and years and years of funerals, that church people will find any, any reason almost to explain to you no matter how far back in life, how minuscule, how empty or debauched or void of anything of God their life had been since, why they're now with God. And it largely is rooted in this idea that surely, surely, a good God is bound to accept the good works of a good man. And yet Luther was being crushed by a sense of guilt, by a sense of uh, foreboding regarding God's judgment on him. And at this time, uh, Luther uh, was called, Luther was teaching, and yet he struggled. So in 1510, he took a journey to Rome. He walked to Rome, about a thousand miles. He walks to Rome because he'd been told, if you'll go to Rome and you'll visit the sites of the saints and, and you'll do penance, right? You'll, in a sense, punish yourself physically. God will assuage this guilt that you're feeling, and you'll experience the atonement, the forgiveness 
that you're longing for. Well, that doesn't, that doesn't come. That doesn't come. And later around 1515, while wrestling with one single verse from chapter one of Romans, which I will reread. We did work on this last year. I won't really work through it this morning. You can go back and listen if you want to. But this, this verse was a real hang-up for Luther. Romans chapter one, verse 17 says, for in the gospel, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Quoting Habakkuk there. And and this, this verse completely undid Luther because what he understood it to be saying was that in the gospel, a righteous standard of God is revealed and only those who have that righteous standard will by faith be acceptable to God. And Luther knew he didn't have that. How many of you this morning in your own life would know if you were to stand before God today based on your own human righteousness and his standard was himself, the blameless life of Christ Jesus. His standard was complete holiness complete purity, complete sinlessness. How many of you have confidence that you would stand before God pleasing to him, justified and accepted? This is where Luther was and and he wrecked himself over and over and over and he got really to almost hate this verse and hate the God of whom it spoke. Because he could not become that which he wanted to become. On even a minor level, have you any of you ever struggled with this? In any way, becoming something that you want to become and it just seems like you can't do it. At a real basic level, I think, I hope I've grown a bit out of this. Sharon would be the best judge for that. Uh, But every once in a while, I'll get fired up about becoming something uh, either as a hobby or whatever. I remember I went through my leatherworking phase. Uh, where uh, some years back I was going to become uh, a leather worker just as a hobby. I was going to do it in the garage and make things and create things. And I got this little, uh, this little starter leather box. Never even opened it. Never opened it. Never created anything. Never sliced anything. Never did anything. But I was so certain that that was my upcoming dream hobby. That was how I was going to blow off steam, and who knows, might turn into a side hustle. All you ladies have side hustles. This might be mine, right? I spent $50 on this starter kit. Never opened it. But you magnify that when you talk about dealing with an issue of character or a significant area of flaw in your life, and you're like, I'm not going to do this anymore, Let's just like, let's level the playing field. How many of you have ever said something like that in life with good intentions before Christ and mess that up later? I will never do this again. Look at us, look around, hold them up, don't be scared. Hold them up and look around. What a bunch of losers we are. We're, we're all in here, just a big room of losers that God loves in Christ Jesus. 
in Christ Jesus. We are not the team we'd pick if we wanted to win something. Right? And this is, this is where Luther was. Listen to his own words. And I know much like Romans 1.17, you're going to be like, hmm, I'm not sure. I need to take Luther's words and then work through them. But I pray that by God's spirit, some of this is going to penetrate both our minds and our hearts in a way that works itself out of our, our mouths and our hands and our feet into our lives. Because what we're going to see this morning is, is basically twofold. That the Reformation really changes everything about how we relate to God, how we relate to God, and it changes everything about how we relate to everyday life, how we relate to everyday life. Here's what Luther said about his conversion, that by the mercy and grace of God, he eventually did experience. Luther said, at last... By the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed. He said, I I noticed and began to understand the context of the words in Romans 1.17. Namely, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written in Habakkuk. He who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand, finally, that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous live by a gift from God, by a gift from God, namely by faith. It's not that you are righteous and that allows you to live a life of faith, but that in God's mercy, he grants us faith leading then to our righteousness. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel. By the gospel. See, the the Reformation, the Reformation in the 1600s was literally nothing less and nothing more than a rediscovery of the apostolic gospel that had been lost through the centuries in the church. And with it, a, a rediscovery, or maybe by it, a rediscovery of a theology of salvation and a theology of the local church that changed everything that we take for granted today. I'll say a little bit more about why that is in a minute. Paul goes on and says, the righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous and shall live. Luther said uh, this, he said, here I felt I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. He said also in this, all of the scripture began to take on a new light to me. He had uh, moved from seeing and understanding God as an ungracious, tyrannical judge to a gracious, righteous, imparting loving judge. And it changed his life. I wonder how many of you have had that personal experience. How many of you in here this morning have wrestled with that reality, with the reality that you are indeed deeply a sinner in need of God's mercy? Well, this leads Luther to begin to dive into the Bible in a way that he hadn't done before. And quite honestly, in a way that many of us have not done before. 
And all of a sudden, Luther starts to understand and see the falsehood of much, if not most, of the Roman Catholic theology that made up his church. Made up his church. And it was that, along with specifically the heightened sale of indulgences, which, which were just little pieces of paper issued by the Pope, and he would send emissaries out to sell these to well-meaning men and women as a way of having their sins forgiven and their sins forgiven and cleansed in the afterlife and the sins of their loved ones so that they might skip purgatory and go right to glory or at least have purgatory shrinked. And the, the best of these salesmen could really get these things on fire, right? It wasn't a side hustle, it was a main hustle. And they were using those funds to build and to restore St. Peter's Basilica and other churches. And this led to October 31st, 1517, when Luther really timidly nails on the church door in Wittenberg, which served as a bulletin board for the community, or at least the academic community, nailed his 95 theses, his, his questions, his, his issues with the theology of the church in his day. Now, Luther didn't stride up there boldly and grab a huge railroad spike and a sledgehammer, explode up in green like the Hulk, and nail them up there and then spin around and say, here I stand, I can do no other. In fact, he didn't print them in the common language of the people or write them. He wrote them in Latin, hoping to just have a sincere discussion with some other scholars and, and to begin to work them and tweak them when he sent them to a publisher to have them published in Latin so that he could get them to a few more people to, to think out these issues between them, the publisher published them in Latin um, and then in German, in the vernacular. And when everybody started reading it, it actually made Luther nervous. He's like, whoa, I haven't even, that's my, that's my first draft, right? I haven't gotten a second draft. I hadn't even sent it to my editor. I'm not quite sure I wanted to discuss, but God lit a fire there that still burns today. And God had been preparing that. He'd been gathering the straw that he lit in 1517 by his sovereign providence through the witness of guys like John Wycliffe in England who began to have these, these Protestant and reformer beliefs and begin pushing back on the established Catholic view. He translated, was the first to translate the Bible into English, eventually died before they could execute him. But, and you guys, if you've been around me, know how much I love this story. In 1428, by, by command of the Pope, they had his remains dug up, burned, and scattered in the River Swift. I just love that story. I hope one day to righteously so infuriate some kind of institutional power that maybe they'll dig my bones up one day, burn them, and drop them in some dopey river in America. I don't know. But it shows you the threat to the power system that guys like John Wycliffe was. Wycliffe was in the 1300s. In the late 1300s, early 1400s, came Jan Hus or John Hus, J-A-N is how it's spelled, a Czech theologian, who read Wycliffe and agreed, right, that the authority rests in the word of God, not in the church, 
not with the Pope. And they did grab Huss and executed him in 1415. But they, they and those who read what they wrote and their followers became kind of the straw that God was gathering. And then Luther was the match he lit. Michael Reeves in The Unquenchable Flame. I highly recommend this book to you. If you want to know more about the Reformation and you want to read a simple, small book on it, this is the book to get. It's less than 200 pages. I'm almost embarrassed to recommend it, but it's so good. It's so good. It's in our bookstore. It's on the little round table out there um, at cost. I'll remind you, we don't make money off of them. We just offer them to you. Um, But I don't know, we've got four or five or five or six copies out there under $200, and it is a great, simple read. Um, I don't know what happened. Oh, yes. Anyway, a great, short, simple little read. That explains, you're so right, Jake, that explains the, the Reformation to you. So I encourage you to stop by there. We've got some other works by Luther, uh, biographies, some other um, church history kind of books there. But hear what Reeves says in The Unquenchable Flame. The reason Luther had posted his 95 Theses was because he believed the way indulgences were being sold cheapened repentance. Can I tell you, I think a lot of what we do in the church today, if we're not very careful, does the same thing. I think cheap membership that has no meaning or expectations cheapens repentance. I think singing words to songs week in and week out that we don't take seriously, that we're not committing ourselves to the Lord in and by as we're singing cheapens repentance. I could go on and on. Reeves continues, and at that time, repentance was at the heart of Luther's thinking. Now listen to this, it had all come about through a deepening sense of the radicality of human sin. We talked about this if you're in our institute class on Wednesday night a couple of weeks ago when we covered the, the doctrine of sin and talked about how largely lost it is today but how significant it is to the gospel because you can't see people saved uh, un, unless you can get them to an understanding that they're lost. Luther had begun to see the extreme naivete of the medieval teaching that God will not deny grace to those who do their best. And I I really want to press you to ask yourself if at the center of your soul you really do believe that, that God's not going to deny grace to those who just do their best, to those who sincerely believe whatever they believe, those who sincerely are trying to be kind and good and generous human beings. Scripture says that doesn't get you very far. That suggested, this idea that God will not deny grace to those who do their best, suggests that mankind was morally neutral or even good, meaning that our best was acceptable to God. Yet Luther saw the problem as one of our hearts. Self-love shapes the very grain of our desires, not Love for God and love for others, but love for self apart from the grace of God. As a result, our best can be nothing more than self-love. And and it was this that drove Luther finally to say all these indulgences are foolishness, all these relics of saints are foolishness, all of this, uh, this physical attempt by human beings through works to atone for their sin is foolishness. And I say to you this, that part of why we, um, 
we are not impacted in the way that we should be by the Reformation, both theologically and historically, is because we live in a nation that has only existed post-Reformation. We live in a nation, a very young nation, that has only existed post-Reformation. We were already being shaped, already being shaped by two centuries of Reformation history and theology when we were founded as a nation. We don't, we, if you think about it, and I shared with you some weeks back now, I don't remember the message or how long it's been, but of, of walking by and standing on the spot where Latimer and Ridley were um, bound to the stake and burned uh, for their Reformation commitment uh, to Scripture uh, and to Protestant theology in Oxford. We don't live in places like that. We don't live in places like that. But our brothers and sisters in Christ in other parts of Western Europe, at least, in almost all major cities of Western Europe, you find monuments to individuals who were executed, burned, dismembered for their Reformation beliefs. We don't have that. We don't have that, so we miss so much of the significance. Um, uh, the, the most significant work that Luther Uh, ever wrote, and if you're going to read anything of Luther himself, which you can read, right? People have happily translated it into English for you. Um, The Bondage of the Will by Luther is is the book you need to read. We also have it out there on the table, but um, J.I. Packer and another individual did a a translation, and in the introduction, J.I. Packer has a beautiful um, paragraph about why justification and why this issue of sin and God's free grace is so profound. Listen with me, if you will. To the reformers, the crucial question was not simply whether God justifies believers without works of the law. It was the broader question of whether sinners are wholly helpless in their sin and whether God is to be thought of as saving them by free, unconditional invincible grace. Now listen. Put your listening ears on and turn your minds on. Not only justifying them for Christ's sake when they come to faith, but also raising them from the death of sin by his quickening spirit in order to bring them to faith. Here was the crucial issue. Whether God is the author not merely of justification, but also of faith. Whether in the last analysis, Christianity is a religion of utter reliance on God for salvation and all things necessary to it, or of human self-reliance and self-effort. Because what Roman Catholic theology said and says today You can go back, you're sensible and smart people, look at Vatican II, look at subsequent statements on theology from the Roman Catholic Church. Here's how it works in Roman Catholic theology. Faith plus works equals justification. Protestant theology says faith equals justification plus works. That those who've been truly born again, regenerate men and women in Christ, those who've been saved, who've come to faith, who are disciples, who are Christians, are justified, and they live different. There's evidence of salvation in their lives. There's fruit that is there. That's why it makes all the difference in the world. 
and how we relate to God. Let me tell you why this is necessary, why this is so significant that we stand right here at the center today. Two reasons. One is the universality of human sin. Every single one of us, every child in here, I love you kids. I'm so glad that you're here. You're sinners, just like we are, right? The universality of it, everybody, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, and it doesn't leave us. We know Romans 3.23 from evangelistic training. All have sinned and fallen short of the standard that God has set for us, a standard that reveals his glory. C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain said, we have this strange illusion that mere time cancels sin. Think about this. Lewis said, I've heard others and I've heard myself recounting cruelties and falsehoods committed in boyhood as if they were no concern of the present speakers and even with laughter. But mere time does nothing either to the fact or to the guilt of a sin. Lewis is saying our sin, our sin stays with us and it builds and the guilt for it builds and the wrath do it builds. The second reason this is necessary is because not only does time not erase human sin, human effort or striving doesn't either. And it leads us to this, to the inevitability of divine judgment. Romans 14, 12 says, we're all going to stand. We'll all stand before God and give an account for our lives. Sin will not be overlooked by God. But here's the thing. Our modern Western and American culture rejects both. Rejects the universality of human sin. In fact, it says people are basically good, born good. And pays no attention to a coming judgment by God. And that leads us then, very briefly, to 2 Corinthians 5. Only to the last verse that we read this morning. The verse that a theologian called the great exchange. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, that is Jesus Christ, who had no sin to be sin. For us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He takes on our sin. And through regeneration and conversion, he puts his righteousness on you. It's for you that God made him sin, it's for you that God made him your sin. So that on the cross, Jesus didn't take on just sin in a general term. Not just sin as death, sin as evil, sin as the force against God. But your sin nature and your individual sins onto himself. And they were crucified. They were crucified. They were paid for. And then he goes further. He imputes his righteousness to you. He declares you to be something in Christ that you're not yet. But he chooses to see you that way. It's, again, legal language. It's, it's the language of a judge declaring you utterly guilt-free, though you are not. Listen, if you will, to a, a couple of paraphrases of a verse 
that is familiar to us here in 521. This is by Phillips in his New Testament translation. For God calls Christ, who himself knew nothing of sin, actually to be sin for our sakes, so that in Christ we might be made good with the goodness of God. Eugene Peterson in the message says, in Christ, God put the wrong on him who never did anything wrong so we could be put right with God. He gets our sin, we get his righteousness. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the center of what the reformer said. The church can't hand this stuff out. The church is not the savior or the sanctifier. Let me uh, give it to you in a few different ways. The Apostle Paul in Romans 5 verses 10 and 11 puts it like this. For if while we were God's enemies, and we know from other places in scriptures that we are and were before Christ, we were reconciled to him through death, the death of his son. How much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Not only in this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation or been made right with God, been restored to relationship with God. We said yesterday in membership class that, that God's pleasure and his delight in you is full and complete in Jesus Christ. There's nothing that you can do or not do that affects that right now. Because it's not centered in you. If it is, you're in trouble. If it is, I'm in trouble. But you're in Christ. You've been clothed with Christ. You've been bound to Christ by the faithfulness of Christ. In the mercy of God. One more quick passage here. Colossians chapter 1 verses 20 through 22. Let me start with 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, that is Christ, and through him to reconcile himself to himself all things. To reconcile to himself all things, not just sinful human beings, but all that has been disrupted and disordered and affected in God's good creation by human sin. To reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free, free, free from accusation. Makes all the difference in the world in how you relate to God. And how God relates to you as saved and restored sinners, now seen as saints. Saints still sinning? Yeah. But also in the process of sanctification by the Spirit. Listen to the words of one of the church's great older hymns. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior.
Now listen to this next line. Guilty, helpless, lost were we. Blameless lamb of God was he. Sacrificed to set us free. Hallelujah. What a savior. And then let me just tell you very quickly. The gospel rediscovered in the Reformation doesn't just make all the difference in how you relate to God, but it does indeed make all the difference in how you relate to everyday life. Because part of what Luther uh, and Calvin and Zwingli and John Knox in Scotland, part of what they began to understand was that if salvation and justification is not the property of the church to hand out based on human action and human striving, but that which is given as a gracious gift of God by faith, and faith indeed is how we please God, then all of life becomes this fear in which we dance before God for his glory and the good of others around us. And it completely reshaped how they felt about calling and vocation. That it wasn't just everybody worked, but the priests had a calling. The priests had a a vocation. It's that everybody has one. That God is reclaiming the world and God is giving you your bread for the day through the works of farmers and bread makers and supermarkets. God is ordering societies. God is working out justice and good for his people through governments, local, state, national, through the justice system, through law enforcement. God is working for people to understand his world and come to a knowledge of all kinds of truths through education. He's he's healing people, but he's healing people through nurses and through doctors and through technicians and therapists. And if we live and please God, as I said, through faith, then all our works, they are godly vocations. They're glorifying to God when done in faith. And they give value to work. Your work matters. Your calling is not something mysterious that you're waiting to find, right? Your calling is your current circumstance. Now that may change, but it's not changing this second. Your calling is as a friend, a daughter, a son, a husband, a wife, a mother, father. As a worker, as a student, as a caregiver plus whatever work outside the home you may do. But in this, everything began to be opened up. And Luther said, one can change a diaper with as much worship and glory to God as one can preach a sermon. Have you understood that? Have you understood God's recreating, reclaiming, creative work through you, through what you're doing, even in the small acts of cleaning a home? You're you're imaging God as you're ordering, bringing order to chaos. I would do that to our house, but God did the whole world in six days, and I don't want to be embarrassed that it took me seven and a half months to order our home. So it wasn't just how we related to God, but that bled into all of life. So that when you pull out from here after this and you go somewhere maybe to lunch, God is giving you 
Manna for the day. He's giving you this day your daily bread through the server and the restaurant that you go to, through the the truckers and the mills and the farmers and the ranchers behind them. Maybe you go home. Same kind of principle at work there. So we thank God for the hands he's used. We recognize the significance of labor. We recognize the beauty of trucks that come by our house. Only kids seem to get the wonder of garbage trucks. But I can tell you, if they didn't run for a month, all of us would run outside to clap for them and cheer for them like children do. What's God doing? God's caring for social order and hygiene and the wellness of the human condition through those individuals, driving those trucks, taking this trash away, dealing with it. It matters. How do you glorify God? You glorify God most by doing with a whole heart in faith as well as you can what he's put before you to do today. And is doing it with a grateful heart. These are just a tiny slice of the great Reformation truths that we thank God for today. That just as God doesn't see fit to leave mankind in darkness, he didn't see fit to leave his church in a great degree of darkness that had been permeating her for centuries. All of us today are reformed and still reforming. All of us today stand on this side of this this great change in human history in the 16th century. As the band makes their way uh, back up here and begins to prepare us uh, to lead us in a time of reflection and response, I want to encourage you, what, what do you do with this great truth? Maybe you'd say, I haven't experienced something like Luther. I don't know. I still feel the guilt. I'm still nervous and undone by the thought of standing before a righteous and holy God. The reality is that the gift of of Christ is one that it must be received. It must be received. And when we understand our sin and God's beauty and goodness and holiness, ours is to throw ourselves on his mercy And say, God, I see it. I need you. I believe in what you did in and through the person and work of Christ. And I want to receive that. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you need to get alone later today and and do work with the Lord there and pray. Maybe you do it right now. But my encouragement is that you do it. Is that you do something with the gift that God's holding out to you today and that if you do let us know that let us know that as a church we're called to make disciples baptizing them we want to give you that opportunity to make your faith public and say I declare myself by the grace and mercy of God to be in Christ now to belong to him We want to baptize you and we want to help you walk as a disciple of Jesus. In just a minute, I'm going to pray for us. And as I do, our offering ushers will make their way to their positions. When I finish praying as one way of responding to God and to the word of God, we give. We give regularly and faithfully and sacrificially for the ministry of the gospel. There are other ways that you can 
mark decisions you may feel called to make on your connection card. As those buckets come by, drop in your giving envelopes if you give on Sunday morning, the post throughout the week, online or by text. Drop in your connection cards. And be honest before the Lord this morning. And I pray that your heart will be filled with gratitude for who he is and what he's done, just as Luther's was so many centuries ago. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that through the wrestling with your word by the miracle of your spirit, men and women are brought to faith. That God, through the foolishness of preaching, you see fit to save some. God, I pray that that work would be full in this place this morning. Lord, I pray that we'd be people committed to reading your scriptures, to reading other works, learning and growing. God, sharing with those on our neighborhoods, in our neighborhoods, on our streets, sharing with classmates, sharing with coworkers, friends, acquaintances, inviting them to come with us into this beautiful, gospel-centered, biblically faithful, Christ-exalting community that their lives, too, might be changed. God, bless those now as we come to a time of giving who are about to give. Take what's given, stretch it, and multiply it. Do with it more than we could ever ask or imagine. To the glory of your name and advance of the gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about Lost Mountain, visit us online at lnbc.us. Thanks for tuning in today.